This is Mark Fletcher, and welcome to my world. Welcome to Southern Tales, Tall and Otherwise. Growing up, I was always intimidated by large people. They could have been large in size or large in height, but sometimes ones with large voices or deep voices would do the same. As I grew up and got a little larger myself, that did not happen as often. But then one day, I met a man who was large in every way, and he not only intimidated me with his size, he intimidated me with everything. And like I say, it's just a Southern thing, so sit back and enjoy. When you intimidate, you frighten or make someone afraid. And that's a little bit about what tonight's episode is about. Season 2, Episode 12, James Jim McClendon, Grizzly. So you frighten or make someone afraid. To frighten or make fearful is at the root of the verb intimidate. An animal might intimidate a smaller animal by baring its teeth. And a person can can intimidate another by threatening to do something harmful. While being intimidating has become synonymous with being unapproachable, it's clear that it's not always a bad thing to look like you're capable of doing great things. And great things is what Jim, Grizzly, was capable of. That's where we're off to tonight. And while there may be some disputes about the actual facts, this is the way that I remember it. And in my opinion, Every goddamn word is true. Tonight's episode is sponsored by the children's book for adults, Headley Outsmarts the World, a funny and poignant story that adults can enjoy as well. Plus, the artwork includes 25 original paintings by England's best illustrator, Roz Webb. You can get the book at Amazon, or if you want an autographed copy, you can hit us up here in email at stalespodcast at gmail.com. We've got a few autographed copies. Again, Welcome to the Southern Tales Podcast. Tonight's going to conclude Season 2. And I know you're saying, wow, we still don't know what happened to your Uncle David. We don't know what happened to your Uncle Art. 
We don't know what about the story about Uncle Bob in Vietnam and all the great things he did. And the greatest tale ever where we combine poker, the Beach Boys, and Pablo Escobar. Yep, that'll all be in Season 3. So stay tuned. Uh, hopefully that season will start soon. But, and again, tonight we're still going to talk about some characters you met previously on Southern Tales. So if you get a chance, listen to the previous episodes. I think you'll enjoy them. And I really hope you tell somebody if you like it. Um, I think listening to the, all of them makes them more meaningful and have a little bit more fun. But you've already heard a little bit about Jim's family. Grizzly, we called him. It was his grandfather whom we buried in Season 1's The Funeral Episode. If you hadn't heard that one, you very well might want to, because from my perspective, it was pretty weird and funny. So, you do know his people come from the mountains of Alabama. But Jim and his two brothers and sister grew up in Memphis. I first met his sister on a Red Beer Valentine's night at the Varsity Inn 1980. The VI, Varsity Inn, was on Highland Avenue on the Strip, not too far from Memphis State. It was a, uh, it was a hangout for a, a lot of Memphis State students, and they had cold beer, which was important. And on this night, it was red beer. So my roommate Shane first noticed Carol's makeup-heavy friend, Chrissy. But while he was on the hunt, I met Carol. And she was one of the nicest girls I'd ever met, and we became a thing. And since family is big with those kind of folks, I soon met them all, including Jim, who they called Grizzly. He was 6'3 or 6'4, and gosh dang it, if he didn't look just like Hank Williams Jr., including the beard and glasses, everything about him. Of course, he loved Bocephus and most all classic rock. I guess Jim was maybe 10 years older than me, but we shared a lot of similar things. Music, cars, golf and we quickly became pals. I mentioned intimidation. Well, because as long as I knew him, I was intimidated. I think everyone was intimidated by him. He was smart, and we're going to get to that. He was strong, of course, anyone who looked like that, but most of all, he was unpredictable, occasionally scary. But his friends were always happy that Grizzly was on their side. And we talked music all the time, and because I was into music and so was he, and I remember when the Bodines came out, he thought the Bodines were the second coming of the Beatles. Now, if you haven't heard any Bodines records, you ought to grab a couple, because they were a, a group from Wisconsin, and they had a lot of things going for them. Not sure where they are today, but he loved them, but he was also into Led Zeppelin and, and the British Invasion stuff. I can remember we would oftentimes debate about my love of Leonard Skinner versus his love of the Yardbirds. To me, it was no comparison. And to him, it was no comparison either. Now, Jim had grown up, I guess you could say he was a rebel. He was one of those guys who, he would like to wear cut-off blue jeans to church and just see what happened. And if they didn't like him, hell with it. He was just that kind of guy. Um, Jim got to go to Vietnam, where he would tell us stories about... Um, being having Agent Orange dumped all over him. I mean, I don't think he really was very happy with the military, what, what they did. Um, but when they took him in, they did all the, 
you know, the IQ testing and everything. And I guess Jim tested pretty darn high because they wound up putting him, sending him to a class to learn to speak Russian. He told me that he read Dostoevsky, War and Peace, in a Russian book, which, you know, if that doesn't intimidate you about intelligence, I don't know what is. And, and the conversations you could have with him were just, you know, everything was just had such a depth to it that you didn't get with regular people. And, and you would have thought that Jim was, you know, a brain surgeon or some type of uh, intellectual, you know, had some kind of job doing something that was fantastic. But no, Jim was a truck driver. Jim drove one of the trucks that would go down to the lot in Memphis and pick up all the new cars. And he'd deliver them all over like a five or six state area. And I, it was hard to ask Jim a question that might seem critical. But one day I said, you know, Jim, you're smart as hell. I can't believe you're a truck driver. And he said, well, you know, when I got back from Vietnam, you know, I was going to go to school or whatever. And in the meantime, I got a job laying linoleum for this guy. He said, this guy was all over my ass, and I didn't have, no one had to tell me how to lay linoleum, you know, but this guy was always on me. And one day, I just got in his face and just told him, you know, up yours, I quit. And at that point, I decided I was never going to work for nobody, and nobody was ever going to tell me what to do ever again. So driving a truck seemed like the natural thing. His stepfather was a truck driver, and so that might have had something to do with it. But that was just who Jim was. He was his own man through and through. But he was so loyal to his family and, and his brothers and sister. And he would, I, I, would, I would say he was one of those guys who would do anything. He, he had just such a big heart. Um, he had a great wife, Rose, and had two sons. And, you know, he was a gruff on the outside kind of guy, but inside, I think he was really special. I remember one time he was driving his truck back into Memphis and he heard on the radio, they called my name out on uh, one of the radio stations. You know, you don't, you'd enter all these contests and it was for dinner for two at Captain Bilbo's, which was the nicest restaurant down on the riverfront at that time. And he pulled his truck off the highway into a crowded area and called me for like 15 minutes before I finally answered the phone. And he said, you got six minutes left to call the radio station to get this meal. And so I did, you know, and I got the, the meal for two at Captain Bilbo's, which was pretty amazing. But just the fact that this guy pulled his big rig off the road to call me was cool. Now, I can't tell you all the stories he told me about driving the big rig on the road because it might hurt somebody's feelings somewhere down the, road, down the line, but... There were definitely opinions. He was very opinionated about things. And I can just remember that one of the things he hated the most about being a truck driver was at the way stations. He said those son of a bitches were nothing more than highway robbers. And he didn't like them. He had a pickup truck that he drove. And I guess it blew an engine or something. And my younger brother was, you know, into auto mechanics and doing stuff. And I told him about it, and he said, you know, we can put a new engine in that thing for $700 or whatever, or a, a rebuilt engine or whatever the case. And so I talked to Jim about it, and he knew my brother, and he thought that was a good idea. It was saving money. So they got the truck up to the shop or whatever, and they got the, the motor in that they had purchased for it. And when they got it in, they realized that it was one year off of what it should have been, 
and as a result, the dipstick was on the wrong side. And they were all sweating because who wanted to tell Jim that they'd bought the wrong engine for his truck? So instead of telling him, they decided to find some way to rig it up where they could still get, get, around, get around it, you know, and it took a lot longer to have happen. And uh, Jim was kind of upset that it took so long, but they got the truck back to him and it ran and I think everything was fine. But it was just interesting how everybody was afraid to tell him what had actually happened. <laughs> You know, and I mentioned golf. We, we play golf every Saturday and Sunday at the public courses around Memphis. And occasionally, we would take a trip to some of the golf courses around, you know, West Tennessee and whatnot. We'd been to Paris Landing. We'd been to uh, Pickwick. We'd been to a couple courses up in, you know, like, Carroll Lake and different things. Uh, it was always fun to take a trip with him. And my father loved Jim a lot because Jim was just... You know, I say he was intimidating. I say he was intelligent. But he was also funny. I mean, you just... It was just something wonderful about being with a guy. And on our golf trips, it was always, you know, he was there the day that um, my father on a number eight at McKellar Golf Course in Memphis used a driver on a 119-yard hole. Yep, that was Pop golfing. Anyway, Pop's ball hit the green, took one bounce up in the air, hit the flag stick, and bounced away two or three feet. And Jim's comment was, well, I'm glad it didn't go in because it sure would have been embarrassing to have had to witness a hole-in-one, a guy, a driver, on a 119-yard hole, which there was some truth to that. Anyway, Pop missed the putt the first time, but we gave him a do-over, so he wound up burning the hole anyway. But Jim also loved Bob Bijou. They, he, he could look at Bijou and, and the oddness of Bob and just love it and kind of laugh with it and – but he also understood Bob's uh, intelligence and, and his, you know, I guess it was uh, eccentric. But Jim could appreciate that. And there's several other stories that happened with uh, Bijou and Jim. And maybe at some point we'll get to those stories as well. But, but the main story I really wanted to tell was about one morning where Jim and I, just the two of us, had went to play. It was a Sunday morning and went to play at Pine Hill Golf Course. It was a public course uh, in southwest Memphis. Um, I, it was one of our favorite courses, actually. But uh, And it was one where a lot of diverse people played. I mean, there was white guys and black guys, and it was just a cross-section of Memphis, so it was pretty cool, although I think it was probably in a lower-income area of Memphis. On this day, we decided that uh, we were going to rent pull carts, and pull our golf clubs and um, since it was just two of us it was a crowded Sunday morning the starter put us with two other guys who also had pull carts and so you put your golf golf clubs on these pull carts and and just pull them behind you so you don't have to lug that big bag with you all the time and we played nine holes these guys and you know I think they were a little uppity they weren't really our kind of guys so we we weren't having a lot of discourse with these guys and on the 10th hole at Pine Hill was a little dog leg downhill from the clubhouse. So you would hit a, a medium iron down the hill to the corner, and then you would hit up to the green. Well, all four of us hit our ball up near the green, and when you came down towards it, the cart path turned about 50 yards before the green, so everybody would leave their clubs on the cart path and take your putter out and walk up to the green. Well, all four of us had done that, and all our clubs were down there, and we were up on the green putting, when one of the guys looked around and said, hey, those guys are stealing our clubs. And I looked down there, 
and these two little black kids had, had grabbed a bag each. One had grabbed Jim's bag, and one had grabbed the bag from one of the other guys. Now, my clubs were okay, so I was feeling pretty cool about it. But then I realized, I looked around, and I knew that the, nobody on this green was going to be able to catch these kids except for me. So I took off running. And these kids that took these clubs, and they'd hit this little creek area that was near the, uh, the edge of the golf course. And so they were running down the, the creek, and I came after them. And finally, the slower one I caught. As soon as I touched this kid, he started crying. I mean, crying loud. I looked at him. He couldn't have been eight or nine years old. And the other kid looked back and saw that I had him, and he stopped, and he came back. Turned out he was like a year or two older, and that was his little brother. And he came back, and he was apologized, and they started both crying when the first of the other guys got there. They had had his bag. And he got there, and he grabbed the kid and started shaking him and cussing and calling him all kinds of racist names and awful things. And the kid's crying more, and the other kid's crying. And I, I got in the way. I said, hey, man, you can't do this. And he started talking about he's going to call the cops. He's going to have the death penalty and the FBI and all these awful things, this little kid. And, and you know, it's not the kind of guy I was. I just saw a couple little kids there, you know, children. And I'm trying to get him off when Jim gets there. Grizzly, right? Jim finds out what's going on, and uh, this guy is still trying to get around me, and he's screaming at the kids, and he's got a kid shaking him, the other kid's standing there crying and screaming. And Jim says, so you got my bag too? And so you lean down into his bag, and I just thought he was going to pick up his bag. But when Jim came back up out of his bag, he had his gun. Now, Jim always had a gun, and he put it right in this guy's face and said, let the kid go. And the guy just looked at him, and he let the kid go. And Jim said, you kids need to learn a lesson, okay? Now, y'all go on. And that man said, you son of a... And Jim said, and you two guys are finished today. Get your shit and leave the golf course because you're done. One of the coolest moments I ever had. And even telling the story now, I get just a little bit emotional about how Jim knew exactly what to do and how he picked up on the situation and that his heart was you know, aim in the same direction as mine. Fantastic. Anyway, life went on and changed and everything. And I wound up moving away for a few years and doing different things. And I kind of lost touch with, with the whole family. And when I came back, you know, I didn't, didn't really know how to get in touch or whatever. And I ran into a Jim's sister-in-law one day at the racket club. She was on a business meeting or something. And she came over and talked to me and, you know, asked me how I was doing. I told her fine and whatnot and asked her how she and the family were doing. And her first thing was, well, you know, we lost Jim. I said, what? Lost Jim? She goes, yeah, like two or three years after you left, uh, Jim committed suicide. I slumped back in my chair and even now it hurts to even think about something that horrific. She started telling me about how Jim had got a divorce from Rose and how things had gone sideways. And he, you know, who knows? I just know that if he lost Rose, he was smart enough to know it was, he was heading the wrong direction. And I you could never understand why a guy as smart as him could ever be so depressed or ever be in such a bad place. And I felt bad that I wasn't there and he couldn't have called me or whatever. I guess there's nothing you can do in those situations, but um, 
I guess he had, he had shot himself, and that, that was it. Another super smart guy, another guy who was, had a big heart, another guy who I loved, and um, I wound up writing a song called Grizzly. Uh, basically, the chorus is, you were the smartest man of all time. We'll miss you. For the liner notes of this episode and all episodes of the Southern Tales podcast, please go to broadneckmusic.com where you'll find out more about the episode. You can also find more about our kick-ass theme music from Audra Brown, one of Memphis's best young songwriters. You can also contact me at stalespodcast at gmail.com. You can ask questions, hey, or you can tell me your stories, and eventually your stories can get on Southern Tales podcast. Once again, Thanks for listening, and please tell a friend about the fun we're having. See you next week on Southern Tales, 20 Minutes and a Smile.